This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Endy, the 100% Canadian-made mattress. Endy is changing the way Canadians sleep, and their mission is simple, to provide Canadians from coast to coast to coast with the best possible sleep. Go to endy.ca and use the promo code Oppo for $50 off any Endy mattress. That's O-P-P-O. The Big Story is Canada's first daily news and culture show. Every morning, host Jordan Heath-Rawlings sits down with one of Canada's best journalists to take a deeper look at a story that matters to Canadians. This isn't about reading headlines, it's not about clips or quotes or hot takes. It's about stopping the news cycle, even if just for a few minutes, and letting us all catch our breath and get smarter together. You can find TBS on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or Spotify, and at thebigstorypodcast.ca, or say hi on Twitter, at thebigstoryfpn. From Canada Land, this is Oppo. I'm Justin Ling. And I'm Jen Gerson. And on this week's show, we take aim at Canada's gun laws. With the long gun registry long dead and buried, do the laws on the books really do enough to curb gun violence, or are we just hassling hunters? With high-profile incidents like the Danforth shooting and tragedies like the Quebec mosque shooting, not to mention the ongoing shit show about mass shootings in the U.S., I would say that awareness about gun control and gun violence is on the upswing yet again. With an election looming, the Liberals are nervously wading into a debate about new gun control measures, and thus far, it's not really going that well. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Endy. Endy offers a 100-night trial with free returns so you can test your mattress in the comfort of your own home instead of the big box showroom floor with all those weird people staring at you. The return process during the 100-night trial is so freaking easy. If you don't love it, they come and pick it up for you, and then they give you a full refund, and they don't ask any questions. What's easier than that? And with free shipping to every single Canadian province, even the secret one, in a box the size of a hockey bag, Endy is Canada's best-selling mattress, with a high rate of customer satisfaction and the lowest rate of returns. Andy also gives customers the opportunity to touch, feel, and try, and smell if you want, the mattress Canadians are falling in love with in select showroom partner locations across the country. When mattresses are returned, and that doesn't happen all that often, Andy works with local charities and furniture banks to donate the new and gently use mattresses to Canadians in need. Go to Andy.ca and use the promo code OPPO for 50 bucks off any Andy mattress. Several contentious issues are being raised, among them new gun legislation. But would rural caucus members back a handgun ban? Joining me now from Saskatoon is Minister of Border Security and Organized Crime Reduction, Bill Blair. Hi, Minister Blair. Great to see you again. We have a responsibility as a government to do everything necessary to keep our citizens and our communities safe. And so I've been tasked with, with examining a number of different measures, including up to and including a handgun ban, so that we can make our community safe, make it more difficult for criminals to get access to, to any firearm, in particular handguns, because, because the level of violence is unacceptable to Canadians, it's unacceptable to us, and we're prepared to take action. Okay, so Justin, right off the top, I really hate talking about gun issues because first and foremost, it's an incredibly emotional issue that usually elicits knee-jerk responses, both from people who really want to see Canada take more drastic measures to ban guns and also from gun owners who think that any kind of reform or movement is just, you know, the liberals coming to take our guns. I find, generally speaking, that the people who are most passionate about some of these issues often have very little understanding of just how restrictive Canada's gun control regime really is. 
And they seem to be basing a lot of their fears on sort of imported realities from what's going on in the United States, which to be clear, nobody in Canada should advocate for. The American gun control laws are absolutely horrific and should not be replicated in any way <laughs> up here in Canada. What, you don't respect the Second Amendment, Jen? Not at all? No, not at all. Not at all. And in fact, you know, it's so funny. <laughs> if you talk to a lot of gun owners up here in Canada, they go down to the States and they're like, holy shit, these people are nuts. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like part of it, because they have, there's no gun safety there. It's just like they're toys. No, there's, there's, there's none. Exactly. It's, it's ridiculous down there. So like nobody is trying to replicate that model up here. But a lot of the paranoia and fear that gets drummed up up here about gun control seems to be really informed by what's happening in the United States. The Parkland mass shootings, Columbine, the lack of gun control down here. And it's important to point out that, you know, while there's always room for improvement in Canada's gun control regime, we can always become more perfectible. Our problems are substantively different than what the US is dealing with right now. Yeah, but I just want you to know, Jen, that every time you get a little bit too trigger happy in this episode, I'm going to play this sound. From my cold, dead hands. Every time you sound like a downtown Toronto urbanite who doesn't seem to understand anything about guns, gun culture, or gun laws, I'm going to make this quacking sound like this. <laughs> and I should say, I mean, if you're looking for somebody who's going to be fervently ban all guns, take everyone's guns away, it's not really me. I mean, I didn't grow up around guns, but I'm not totally against them. I, For some reason, my parents put a shotgun in my hand when I was a teenager, and I actually kind of liked it. I've been to shooting ranges. I get it. It's fun. That said, I am also in favor of probably even more arduous gun control than we already have, because, you know, honestly, from my point of view, the rights of hunters and people to go sport shooting is lesser than the need for public safety. And if there's going to be gun control laws that can improve public safety, I don't really care about your want to go and shoot things in the forest. I'm sorry, I don't. Well, that's the big if, right? right. Now, here's also where I'm going to play the other side on this one a little bit. I know I actually do come from a family that was pretty gun comfortable. You know, I've gone shooting a couple of times. Guns aren't icky or strange to me. I've taken the Canadian Firearms Safety Course. And to be perfectly blunt, I think all journalists should so that they are coming at this conversation from an informed position. But I'm also not going to be one of these batshit crazy, I don't think that you should do anything on gun reform ever. You know, I do think there actually are some incremental changes that could make a real improvement and could be very practical to implement. I mean, the problem that I have coming at this whole debate is the assumption that all gun control is good because it will fundamentally improve public safety. That's a big if, and it's a big assumption, right? Yeah, and a lot of the studies haven't really borne out that necessarily gun control is just by definition going to reduce shootings. It's actually, the studies are kind of out on that. It's very clear that some regulations definitely work, and by and large, Canada's gun laws seem to be pretty good. But that doesn't mean that we couldn't do a better job on some issues. Like, That's right. some regulations are necessary and good and excellent, and some regulations are really just meant to appeal to people on such a visceral, emotional level, and that they would have fundamentally no impact on gun violence. That's right. And I would argue that the handgun ban, and we're going to get into this, but the handgun ban that is sort of being bandied about by the liberals right now is one of these examples. I think that this is one of those things that appeals to people on a gut level. Like, they're like, yes, civilians shouldn't have handguns. Handguns are icky. Handguns are terrifying to me. I don't have experience with them. And so therefore, nobody should have them. But if you actually start to dig into the statistics a little bit, what you're looking at is a potentially an extremely expensive and inefficient program that would have statistically no impact on public safety at all. Whereas there are other better things that the government could consider doing that would make a substantive improvement in gun control and gun safety that would be much more practical and less costly to implement, in my opinion. So there's the show. 
Bingo! <laughs> we should probably go over what Canada's actual gun laws are now, because I feel like a lot of people, I don't think, have a good grasp of what is legal and not legal and what's restricted and prohibited and what those mean in this country. Even I didn't have a really good grasp of this, I assume, like most journalists up until well, maybe a couple of years ago. There is a belief in this country that, you know, going out and getting an AR-15 is super easy. There's also, I'm sure, further belief that AR-15s are, you know, serious business, military assault rifles, and by and large, they're not. And people do import sort of the American context and think, you know, it's very easy to go get a gun in this country. And and it's really, really not. No, it absolutely isn't. And to be perfectly blunt, this is where I'm on board. It shouldn't be easy in Canada to get a gun. It shouldn't be easy anywhere to get a gun. So generally speaking, just as a crash course, basically the three types of firearms in this country are prohibited, restricted, and non-restricted. There are prohibited weapons and that they're almost impossible to get. Very few of them exist in the wild. They were mostly grandfathered in. Prohibited weapons generally mean you cannot have them unless you have a very, very, very specific purpose for it. So those are most automatic semi-automatic handguns. Those are most automatic weapons, assault rifles, bazookas. You, you just can't get them. Nuclear weapons. <laughs> yeah, there's no nuclear weapons. Not allowed to have any dirty bombs. Totally not allowed. And also, can we just sort of explain for a minute like what is the difference between an automatic and a semi-automatic rifle actually is? Do it, Jen. Okay, so a fully automatic rifle is what you would get if you were like in a war zone and you had to have access to an, basically an unlimited spray of bullets. So you are putting huge magazine rounds into your gun and then you are able to pull the trigger and it just an indiscriminate spray would go off. Semi-automatic means that you um, have a limited sort of magazine round. You have to pull the trigger and then but you have to pull the trigger every single time you want to shoot. That's right. And it's semi-automatic because the rifle does automatically reload itself, but it still requires the action of depressing the trigger for the gun to go off. Whereas if you have like a shotgun, for example, you have to load the gun every single time, pull back the action, pull the trigger, and then you have to unload it and reload it. That might sound really obvious and painfully clear for a lot of people, but a lot of people don't actually get the nuance behind that, and it is worth repeating. Now, there are semi-automatics that are allowed in this country, so many semi-automatics fall under the guise of restricted weapons. Now, this would be your AR-15. This is a number of semi-automatic handguns. Um, this are basically you know, a lot of the more serious weapons in this country that have a longer scope that are not clearly for hunting. To get a restricted weapon, you require a license. You also have to pass two different safety courses. The RCMP are going to call two character witnesses for you. There will be a mental health check and you have to have a certificate for every single weapon you own. There's also regulations on how you have to properly store, maintain, and transport all of those weapons. It is actually quite arduous to the point where I even think that some of those regulations are a little over the top. Some of them were actually kind of loosened by the Harper government only to be stiffened again by the Trudeau government over the last couple of years in such a way that has really pissed off a whole bunch of gun owners. And to some degree, I think understandably, some of the regulations on how you have to actually basically apply to just move your weapon from your house to the shooting range, it's a little much. Well, and I would also point out, like I've taken the restricted um, firearms course. And let me tell you, after taking that course, I'm like, it's actually just not worth my time to own one of these weapons. Because not only is there so much legal restriction in terms of how you have to store it, like if you if I were to own a handgun, I would have to double lock that handgun, I'd have to put a trigger lock on it, and then I'd have to put it in a gun safe in addition to that. So I mean, it's useless for anything resembling a self-defense use, because you have to put it behind so many layers of locked storage in order to legally store it. In addition to actually use that gun, 
what you need is you need to get um, a special form called an authorization to transport. So it's a special form that you have to apply for from the RCMP. I think you can still get a blanket or ATT, but every single time that you take that gun out of the house, you need a special license in addition to your firearms license. And you can only go from your house to your shooting range and back. Like you can't stop off at Tim Hortons along the way. And to some degree that, I mean, I haven't haul on this. I mean, it should be inconvenient to have some of these weapons because you don't need them. Oh, absolutely. I have no problem with this. But that is the reality of owning a handgun legally in this country. It is very onerous. It's very restrictive and it's very bureaucratic and it should be. And then in the last class of weapon, what we have is a non-restricted weapon. And I think that this is where a lot of people misunderstand what this means, because I think non-restricted weapon means that it's not regulated at all. And that's not true at all. And they think that just because the long gun registry is gone, it's a free for all and it's not. Yeah, it's not. It's not at all. Non-restricted weapons are basically like shotguns or 20 bolt action 22s. They're the sorts of things that you would see stored in farmhouses, right? Like they're, they're long guns essentially. But in order to get a non-restricted weapon, you still have to go through the firearms course. You still have to go through a safety test. You still have to pass a mental health check. You still have to get a PAL, right? Yeah, you still have to get a PAL. So a PAL is a possession and acquisition license. Um, it's basically the thing you need in order to buy or own or use a gun in this country. And it requires a, a fair bit of overhead. You need to have two references, background checks, mental health checks. There's a lot that goes into it. So there's two PALs. There's the PAL to get the access to the non-restricted weapon. And then there's the R-PAL. So that's you have to get the restricted um, possession and acquisition license. And you need that PAL in order to purchase a weapon or store one. You even need a PAL if you're going to inherit weapons. So you have to go through all of these processes, even if you were to inherit your dad's guns or whatever. So what's different is that a long gun now no longer needs to be registered. However, you know, it still needs to be legally stored and attained. If you are going to store a long gun, you can store a long gun outside of a gun safe so long as it is disabled. So the classic example, for example, would be if you wanted to store your bolt action 22 on the wall, you could, but you would have to take the bolt mechanism out of it and completely store it in a separate place so that anybody who took that gun or handled it, it would be inert. You would not be able to shoot anything out of it. And all of this, I think for most people, you sit and go, this is very reasonable. Canada has very good gun laws. And by and large, we do. But for what it's worth, there is a conversation brewing that maybe it's time to actually think about expanding or kind of improving or specifying some of these rules, because honestly, there are some loopholes here. And I think you've seen the results of that, Um, specifically when there's many non-restricted weapons that are semi-automatics that function just like many other restricted semi-automatics, but because of the barrel length, because of the way they operate, fall in the non-restricted category. Infamously, the gun that was used in the Polytechnic Massacre was a non-restricted firearm, and it still is today. And I think there's many people very reasonably saying any system that can allow these weapons that are very, in some cases, quite obviously not for hunting, but for practice shooting or target shooting, that they can be non-restricted, even with the regulations around non-restricted weapons, where they can be you know legally acquired and not tracked or not registered specifically. That is kind of a problem, and I, I tend to agree with that. But here's where we have to understand what the difference between a restricted and a non-restricted weapon is. Because people tend to think that a non-restricted weapon is somehow less lethal than a restricted weapon. And that's actually not how the classification is done. Some of the most lethal guns you can get in Canada 
are non-restricted guns. Why are they the most lethal guns? Because they're hunting rifles. And hunting rifles are actually, unlike military rifles, designed to be more lethal than the guns that you could buy for target practice. The difference between a handgun and a long gun isn't that a handgun is more deadly. In fact, it's quite the opposite. A handgun's actually harder to shoot, harder to aim, and the bullets are, for lack of a better term, less lethal. The difference between a handgun or a restricted weapon and a non-restricted weapon is that a handgun's easier to conceal. That's what makes it restricted because you could hypothetically put it in your pant pocket and go walking down the street. Whereas if you have a long gun, that's a much harder thing to conceal. And that's why also handguns are more often used in violent crime. Right. And I think you know there is space here to say, I mean, well, A, we evidently have a gun problem and not necessarily a registered legal gun problem. We have a gun problem in general. There's still a shocking amount of handgun crime in this country, considering that it's very, very hard to get one. Obviously, a lot of the people committing those crimes have diverted them either from legal sources or imported them from another country, probably the United States. And you know, it is still an open question about what to do to stop that diversion and to get those guns off the street. And obviously, that's something that the liberal government is sort of wrestling with right now. And that's why the idea of the handgun ban has come up, even if it's not honestly the most you know clearly thought out public policy option. But, and then this is the important thing, I think there's a lot of other options on the table. And now that we've kind of, I think, at least established, you know, what the actual state of play is, we're going to get to some of the things that are being talked about that may yet reduce a spike we're seeing in gun violence right now. But first, we're going to take a break. Life insurance. It's an essential part of any financial plan. The best time to get life insurance is when someone depends on you. For most people, this is when they get married or when they start having kids. Buying life insurance in Canada is also pretty much terrible. It's a time-consuming process and it lacks transparency. There's an endless number of really weird questions that all of the terrible accountants will use against you and there are stacks of paperwork. The big banks don't make it easy. People very often end up overpaying, getting the wrong coverage, very rarely understanding what they bought, but now that is changing. PolicyMe.com is a free online service offering Canadians honest advice on their life insurance needs. Life insurance is not just a should I buy decision. Figuring out what should I buy is just as important. PolicyMe has an easy tool for you to find out what insurance you need and not a penny more. No overselling, no BS. Their advanced life insurance checkup looks at your family's unique characteristics and provides a non-biased recommendation. They'll also tell you if you don't really need any life insurance. Trusted by thousands of Canadians, seeing up to 50% savings by getting honest advice and comparing quotes from top providers. Better yet, apply online with PolicyMe. Free of hassle, free of charge. Feel confident that you and your family are fully protected in an easy and affordable way. Visit PolicyMe.com oppo to get a free life insurance recommendation in just five minutes. Justin Trudeau is failing to offer real solutions. He's gone back to an old liberal trick. He's proposing a lazy blanket ban on handgun ownership for all Canadians instead of taking aim at the real criminals who are actually using guns to commit crimes. So let me be clear about two things. First, criminals don't follow gun laws. That's why they're criminals. They don't obey the existing laws on the books related to firearms and other laws not going to stop them. And second, law-abiding gun owners aren't criminals. A blanket ban will only make criminals out of responsible and conscientious citizens. So I understand what Shear is saying relies on a lot of old rhetoric about guns in this country, but I think it should be noted that what he's saying here is accurate. 
I'm of two minds of this. I, on one hand, you know, as you heard Andrew Shear saying, when guns are already illegal, banning them over again doesn't really make a lot of sense. If these guns are stolen or diverted or, or trafficked over the border, they're already illegal. They're not registered. The person who has them does not have a license. A lot of gun violence happens with illegal guns from people who don't have PALs, that position acquisition license. So yeah, he's right. A ban on something that's already illegal doesn't, on the face of it, make much sense. That being said, I mean, a handgun ban allows you to, I think, create programming specifically targeting those weapons that you're looking for. I think he's being a little too cute by half to just say, it will do nothing. There's no impact we'll have at all. Wait, wait, wait. Stop, stop for a minute. Take a look at this from a practical point of view here. Because there are about a million handguns legally owned in Canada. So in order to get those handguns out of the hands of the owners, you've got three options. Either leave those handguns alone and grandfather them in and basically say, you know, people who legally own handguns right now are going to be able to keep their property. But essentially, you're massively undercutting the value of their property because they can no longer sell those handguns within Canada. They would have to sell them outside of Canada back into the United States market. Right. Two, your option is a buyback program. And a buyback program on handguns is going to cost you hundreds of millions, if not a more than a billion dollars. And everywhere that has had buyback programs has not actually seen a measurable decrease in violence. There's been numerous studies done in U.S. cities, obviously a bit of a different context, but in the U.S. cities that have had government-run pistol buyback programs, actually they've generally bought them back from lawful owners who just didn't want the guns anymore, and it has not actually led to a decrease in violence. Yeah. So we're talking about a massively, massively expensive program. Or C, you just seize them. You literally seize hundreds of millions of dollars worth of private assets um, from citizens, and you say, nope, can't have these anymore. literally go for a gun grab. Yeah, you literally do the gun grab. Those are all pretty extreme options. And if the government is going to consider any one of those three options, I want some evidence that it's going to make, and this is the important part, a statistically significant impact in crime. And here's one of the major problems we have when we're talking about gun violence in Canada, is that right now there are massive, massive data holes. We actually don't entirely know where all of the handguns used in crime are coming from. And there's just totally different reporting standards across jurisdictions in Canada. So like, I think whether or not you're on the pro or the anti-gun side of this particular debate, we can all fundamentally agree that that has to change. That is like one thing that yeah. conservative, liberal, that's an easy proposal. We, we, you know, we actually need some funding and some resources to start seriously tracking where guns are coming from and on a national level. But, but here's the thing that I think needs to be pointed out. What evidence we do have is highly indicative of the fact that the vast majority of handguns used in crime are in fact being smuggled across the U.S. border. That very, very, I mean, very, that, very, very few true. of them. That's partly true. I mean, you're you're very right in that we don't have the stats to back up any anything conclusive. But we can't say with great certainty that you know this is where a lot of the guns being used are coming from. Some independent studies in this country have said that. Well, one study says thirty percent. One study says fifty percent. Neither are you can hang your hat on because both are suffering from a bad data problem. But both of those studies say that a significant chunk of guns used in firearms crimes in this country are diverted from legal owners in Canada. So they're not smuggled into the Yeah, country. but wait, wait, wait. But here's where, where those studies actually don't specify the difference between the handgun and the long gun, the restricted and the non-restricted weapons. Remember when we were talking about the incredibly high levels of storage restrictions required for legal owners in Canada? Well, that's where this becomes really important to understand. Because if you own a handgun legally in Canada, you are not a soft target for theft. 
Okay. Right. So if someone were to break into a legal handgun owner's house in Canada, they would basically need dynamite to get that gun out of the house, provided that owner were storing it legally. And if the owner were not storing it legally, the owner, the legal owner could be subject to improper storage charges. And that is appropriate. But as a result, what that means is that most of the guns that are used in crime in Canada that can be sourced to a Canadian legal owner are long guns. They're non-restricted oh, weapons. They're point. not totally handguns. So like that's that's actually the real clear difference. Switch but, at the same, but at the same time, the majority of gun violence in this country is handguns. But here's why that's really important. If we're talking about a handgun ban, we're fundamentally talking about different issues. Like if you are trying to stem this tide of Canadian sourced legal guns that are used in crime, you have to be talking about a long gun ban, not a handgun ban. Because the number of handguns that are used in crime that can be sourced legally to a Canadian owner is a statistical rounding error. Like, and I'll give you an example, for example. We don't know that. We don't know no, that No, we do. Sure. No, Again, no. We don't have the data necessary. Well, of the data, okay, so yes, with the very important caveat that, yes, if we did a nationwide study, we could see different trends start to emerge in different parts of the country. But I'm going to, for example, pull out some of the data that the city of Toronto used, for example. Of the 1,700-odd guns they seized in 2017, all right, the vast majority of them simply couldn't be traced at all. So that's actually where our biggest black hole comes from. Right. But of the guns that could be traced, something like 50 of those 1,700, like a little over 50 of the 1,700, could be traced back to legal owners. And even of those 50, almost certainly the majority of them were long guns. And here's where I have the fundamental problem with the handgun ban. Now, again, with the caveat that Toronto statistics may be radically different from Winnipeg statistics, may be radically different from Vancouver statistics, we just don't know because we don't have the national level data. But if those trends are even roughly proximate across the rest of the country, what that means is that like, 97% of handguns used in crimes are coming from across the US border. So like if you were to ban all legal handguns in Canada, you're still talking about fractions of a fractions of a fractions of, of a percent. I mean, it still happens though. And I mean, you're talking it, it, about almost like what impact would that actually have on handgun crime? Almost nothing. Like you almost certainly wouldn't even be able to measure it. That's a little too easy to say. I mean, what impact would it have? Oh, you, you can't kind of wave that away. Like, I mean, even reducing uh, the number of shootings in Canada by five or ten a year would be significant. Yeah, but but five or ten a year would be statistically would be statistically unlikely. Is what I'm saying. Look, we can't rule out the possibility that like if you were to ban all legal handguns tomorrow, that like one person might not get shot. I can't rule that possibility out. But again, we're talking about. 100 million to billions of dollars worth of a program to potentially maybe save the life of one person. That's not how you, I know this sounds really callous, but you can't do public policy that way. Toronto police last year said that they had 40 different cases of Canadian firearm owners, and I think it's mostly handguns. Oh, I was so hoping you were going to bring up this case. Selling their weapons. And in one case, one man sold 47 different weapons. No, no, they didn't. They completely reneged on that. Their own data showed that that, in fact, report proved to be completely wrong. Because my colleague, Matt Gurney, actually did look into this. The original story that came out in CP uh, sort of in late 2018 showing exactly that, that report was then followed up by further inquiries that asked for City of Toronto's actual stats to show, okay, if you're seeing a surge in, for example, illegal gun owners um, and their weapons being diverted for, for criminal uses, can you back that up with some kind of statistic? And when they actually produced their statistic, they found that not only was there no such search, but basically the entire story was bunk. And uh, around Christmas of last year, there was a press conference where they basically backed down on that stat. So a lot of the information or sort of a lot of the public understanding around the handgun ban in Toronto has been based on essentially an error in a story. But it's just not true. 
Yeah, Jen, that's totally fair. Matt Gurney called out this story because Toronto police uh, suggested that there was a dramatic surge in the number of uh, these cases of legal owners selling their guns. That's not true. It's always been roughly the same number, but that still is a pretty big number in the context. There is, you know, upwards of 40, 50 cases a year of owners selling their weapons illegally. Um, and in some cases, it's multiple weapons. And that does contribute to the, the amount of illegal weapons in the country. Like, that's hard to deny. And a firearms ban would really stop that. I mean, that is maybe minor, but it's still a number. It is pretty minor, especially when you're talking about a city of multiple millions. But let's but let's also put that aside. If we're going to talk about, okay, look, 40 to 50 cases of legal owners selling their guns to illegal sources, and that is a problem that we want to address. Okay, cool. Let's talk about how to address that problem in a way that's smart and efficient and wouldn't cost the Canadian Treasury potentially hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. A much more effective way of going about addressing that problem might be to do something like what Japan does. For example, if you have a restricted weapon, you need to make sure your weapons safe is available for inspection, surprise inspection at any time. So a police officer can potentially come into your home at any time, look at your weapons, ensure that everything's properly stored, A, and B, make sure that you have as many weapons as you say you're going to have. You know what I mean? Like if you have a license for three handguns and your inspector comes and sees that you don't have three handguns properly stored in your weapon safe, you now lose all of your weapons. They get seized immediately. You lose your license. I'm genuinely concerned that that's not doable in this country. I'm genuinely concerned that there is a culture in this country of gun ownership that is quite defensive. It's not America. Granted. But, you know, look at the High River gun grab from a couple of years ago. The RCMP went into people's homes to remove firearms before their houses were potentially flooded or, you know, basically in the middle of a national emergency. And people went, excuse the pun, ballistic. Yeah. And the amount of animosity that existed then between gun owners and the RCMP that continues, I think, to today yeah. is honestly staggering. And it makes people angry. And, and politicians waded into this. There was multiple members of the Conservative Caucus who got up on, on their hind legs about this one, even though it was a Conservative government at the time. And I you know, I, I think any effort to sort of do more spot checks and any effort to what we perceived as hassling gun owners, it just won't fly with these people. And and I, I, I do think negotiating with some of these gun lobby groups is very difficult, if not impossible. But the lobby groups, let's be perfectly blunt, are not nearly as powerful in Canada as they are in America. So let's not pretend totally that they agree. are. Here's where, why, again, I hate talking about this issue. Because on one side, you get people who are just like reactionary, emotional. There's been a shooting in my city. I'm going to leap on the most extreme possible gun control measure because I think that that will make a difference regardless of whether or not it would make any actual policy difference. And on the extreme other end, you have these reactionary gun owners who are just like, Every single reform the government is going to try to put in place is just them coming after my guns. They're going to put an end to it. And the High River gun grab was was a classic example of this. Let's not pretend that both those sides are equally unreasonable. I mean, you know, those who are reacting to a, either a shooting in the neighborhood or a mass shooting are, you know, reacting with, you know, genuine alarm and the need to do something. Gun owners are basically saying, I like my guns, go away. I mean, the, the, those are just not on the same plane. Yeah, but is the genuine alarm rooted in any kind of rational policy goal that, that is going to be achieved by what they're proposing that is my fundamental issue and and if the answer if the answer is no then i'm sorry but it isn't a rational response it's an emotional response and i can empathize with an emotional response i just don't think that that response is going to do any material good so like that's where i where i separate from you whereas i get that the high river gun grab like personally i thought it was totally overblown as well the owners got their guns back i mean i can understand on one level do you want the police in an emergency situation coming into your house and taking your property on like an, a visceral level? I can also understand emotionally why people got upset about that. But, you know, rationally, do I think that this was some kind of secret plot by the RCMP to take 
gun owners' guns or to secretly plot against them to see who had guns. I mean, no, I don't. I'm generally concerned that when you get to that starting point, not enough ever gets done. I mean, fundamentally, that is a, an appeal to more or less the status quo. And we've seen a number of, uh, and I'm going to look specifically at mass shooting because they should, I think, alarm us into a serious action because they are acts of terrorism. I mean, the 2014 shooting of three police officers in Moncton, the 2016 in Lalage, uh, it was a high school shooting, 2017's uh, Quebec City mosque attack, the Danforth attack, which, and by the way, the Danforth attack was committed using using a handgun that had been likely stolen from a, a gun store in this country. I think all of those should be an impetus for actual serious national action. And I think many people have looked at New Zealand's response to their Islamophobic uh, attack from just a couple of weeks ago to basically institute a more aggressive uh, gun ban. And people have been inspired by it. And I understand why. I mean, this country has done a tremendous amount to fight Islamic-inspired terrorism, despite only having a handful of cases of it ever happening in this country. Uh, and that's good. That's that is the right reaction, because as a country, we do not want to be terrorized. But we should also, I think, act with with seriousness at the trend of increased mass shootings. And I think, you know, looking at serious gun control measures is a reasonable avenue. I, I don't think more spot checks is, is going to be sufficient. I never said more spot checks would be sufficient. Yeah, yeah, I'm just providing it as a potential example. So the problem is that the only way to prevent all mass shootings in this country is, A, you have to rid the country of all illegal guns, which we should be doing anyway way. And potentially you would have to rid the country of all legal guns. So, you know, you're completely killing a sporting industry. You're completely killing a hunting industry. And maybe that's a direction that this country chooses to go. I know there are a lot of people in this uh, who listen to this podcast who would be like, yeah, fuck the hunters. I'm not a hunter. What, what do you need to hunt for? You know, I would just encourage you to sort of consider the fact that, you know, not everybody's like you and not everybody has the same hobbies as you do. And the vast majority of people who are hunting are not threats to human health and wealth. And that's fair. I mean, I think it's worth the discussion. And if ultimately, um, you know, we get improved data and, and, and we can kind of say with some authority, no, this ban will not result in significant changes, then that's fine. Don't do the ban. But and, and just as a last thing, you know, yes, we are talking about mass shootings because they capture the kind of the, the public um, psyche. But the majority of shootings in this country are usually gang related. And yeah. I think but it's also remarkable to me that we've, you know, done the sort of policing we've done over the last 20 or 30 years to try and combat the proliferation of violent gangs. And we're patting ourselves on the back as though we're doing a great job. Everything we've done has not fucking worked. I think, you know, we do have to have a conversation that does involve gun control or, or you know, stopping the flow of illegal arms, but that ultimately does something different in terms of policing gangs. And and that's what sort of just actually disturbed me about Andrew Shear's reaction to uh, the proposed handgun ban, because his entire idea was increased mandatory minimums for a whole whack of people, which is consistently shown not just to not work, but to probably make things worse by, you know, going after the most afflicted communities in the country, which then basically you know, creates a cycle of poverty and violence that does lead to these gangs taking root in these communities. And it's very frustrating. I think I'm frustrated with all sides, with Sheer uh, for just doubling down on failed policies and with Trudeau for putting too much stock in just one option, which is the handgun ban, when in reality, we need to talk about 30 or 40 different ideas. And it's, it's a bummer that I'm not hearing it from anybody. There is no magic bullet. Uh. Ah. So that's it for Oppo. We'll be back in two weeks to discuss Game of Thrones. In the meantime, Commons is back next week. Jen, we made it through the whole show, and I didn't even play that Charlton Heston clip at all, and he didn't quack at me. It, eh, that's eh, pretty eh, good. Eh, eh. <laughs>
You can get in touch with us at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at oppocast to let us know what you think. And I'm sure you have some opinions about this show. This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Theme music by Nathan Burley. I had the last word this week, and that word is quack. 